0: you would turn in your Bibles to John's gospel, we'll be reading this morning the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life that was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all that all through him might believe. He was not... nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. You may be seated. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for revealing yourself to us by sending Jesus. The word tells us that at various times and in various ways you spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Yet in these last days you have spoken to us through your only begotten Son, whom you have appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, the Son whom you sent was the brightness of your glory and the express image of you, God. We praise you for that. We thank you this morning for showing us who you are. May we never forget as we read the pages of Scripture that in this Holy One of God dwells all the fullness of of the Godhead bodily. Fully God he was, and yet he was also fully man. Open our eyes, I pray, Father, to see these truths as we read your word, and may we rejoice in knowing that Jesus stands as the qualified mediator between God and man. Open to us, I pray, your word this morning that we might fully understand. What you would desire for us to know. Shine your penetrating light deep into our hearts and conform us and chisel us. Do whatever it takes, Lord, we pray this morning to mold us evermore into the image of your only begotten Son. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are week four in a five-week series on the advent, on the anticipation and the arrival of Christ. In the last three weeks, we've been talking about the advent, the arrival of Christ, seen through the eyes of various people, various portions of Scripture. We began back in Genesis, and we looked at through the eyes of God Himself, back in Genesis chapter 315, that God had a plan for the arrival of His Son long, long ago, We then spoke of Isaiah the prophet, and then last week spoke of Micah the prophet, and saw through their eyes as the Holy Spirit gave them words to speak, what they had to share, their perspective, their unique look on this arrival of Jesus Christ. Today we are in the New Testament, and today I'd like to have us look at the advent through the eyes of the one who came. Christ himself. Micah prophesied that this ruler would come and he would arrive in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And this ruler would stand to shepherd, to feed his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And you know, as we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see that Matthew and Luke provide a pretty distinct and clear perspective of Christ's birth. Mark's gospel begins through the lens of John the Baptist. Each of the four gospels contributes to the overall picture of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and each of them tells us Much of why he came from heaven to earth. But there's something, church, that's unique about John's gospel. Something that stands out from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And through John's gospel, I'd like to turn your attention once again to the advent of Christ. His arrival, his purpose for coming down to be Emmanuel, God with us. And as we find ourselves in John's Gospel, perhaps you're inclined to ask the question or wonder about a message on the advent from John's Gospel. After all, he mentions nothing as specific as does Matthew and Luke in terms of the birth narrative. But as we see here and one of the reasons I wanted to read these first 18 verses up front, this is the prologue to John's Gospel. Very unique introduction into this gospel. I wanted to read these verses to begin because they are foundational in many ways. Not simply to the gospel of John. But for the whole of scripture. These words are important, significant words for all of scripture. Words for us to hear. Words for us to know and to understand. These first 18 verses establish who this Jesus is. Light, the themes of light and life come forth here. Grace and truth, full of glory. These first 18 verses tell us where he came from. He was with the Father, where he had been. He was here on earth, where he currently was. He was with the Father, where he is going to be. He's going to come back. We see that throughout the course of John's gospel. These verses capture the wonderful truths of Christ's twofold nature, fully God God fully man they established the purpose for John the Baptist the arrival of John there was a man sent from God whose name was John and he came not as the light but to bear witness unto the light his preparatory role of the coming Christ these 18 verses point out that this Lagos This word is the one who declared and made known God himself. Those first three verses, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Do not be so familiar with those words that you miss what it says. I think we've become familiar with these words. We've lost the impact of these words. In the beginning was the word. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. You see, that phrase in the beginning would be a reminder for his Jewish listener of Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, what happened? God created the heavens and the earth. The phrase also might be a reminder to you of John's first epistle in 1 John chapter 1 he says that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we've looked upon our hands have handled concerning the word of life now the in the beginning from Genesis 1 takes you back to the beginning of creation That which was from the beginning in 1 John chapter 1 takes you back to the start of Jesus' ministry on earth. How do I know? Because John, as he's writing the epistle, says it's this one that we had opportunity to see, to look upon, to handle. From the start of his ministry, from the beginning of our time with him. But John's gospel presents another unique look at this phrase, in the beginning. He's addressing, I believe, a third way of viewing this phrase, in the beginning. He's speaking of the time even before creation. Before, in the beginning, God created. There's, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. what is John doing here? And what are the implications for us as we look to the advent of Christ? You see, I want you to know this right up front. John is establishing the identity of Jesus Christ. Church, we must be clear in these days that we live on identifying who this Jesus of the Bible is. John is very clear, very clear, not only in these first 18 verses, but if you read the entirety of John's gospel, you cannot miss over and over and over again. He is putting forth to his listener the identification of Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the word Helping us see that from the beginning, prior to creation, Jesus has been around. Jesus was not a created being. He's existed from eternity past. It says that the word was with God. Jesus was with God in eternity past. John is identifying Jesus as a distinct person. We talk about the Godhead oftentimes and how the Godhead exists of three persons. God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. By the way, side note, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we see the Holy Spirit present. Remember when the world was in darkness? In Genesis 1, verse 2, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are there. They're present from the beginning. But John chapter 1 also says the word was God. Or as the original language has it, and God was the word. The Greek puts God in the beginning. And God was the word. God was the logos. John is identifying Jesus as God. In fact, he presents Jesus as God in verse 1. And then proceeds to show in this gospel how it is so that he is God. All throughout the gospel you see Jesus revealing himself to men. Telling them that he is God's son. He who sent me. He who sent me. He who sent me. That's a phrase you'll come across a lot in John's gospel. God's son. In fact. What you see is you you look at these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You see Luke as a big overarching theme presents Jesus in his humanity as man. You see that Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant. And you see Matthew in his Gospel unveiling Christ as king. John's thesis is simple. And I love it that it's simple. I like simple things. Some of you may like real complicated things. If you like real complicated things and you're a real detailed person, this ought to come real easy for you this morning. John's thesis is simple. Jesus is God's son. And he's going to spend the entirety of the gospel showing us how that's so. And in fact, Jesus himself is going to be telling others how this is so. He's going to be identifying himself all throughout the gospel of John, showing to the people that he encounters who he is. That he is the one who has been sent from heaven. That he truly is God's son. In fact, we see this thesis if you I know some of you have been writing papers. And this thought came to mind Of a big idea up front. John gives us the big idea right at the beginning. And then here's what he does. If you keep your your finger there at the beginning and go to the end of John for just a moment. Turn to the end of John. John chapter 20. Talks about, he says, Jesus did all kinds of miracles and signs that aren't in this book. But verse 31 says, these are written, these, what we have available to us. God's revealed word, what we have available for us. These are written that you may believe, what? That Jesus is whom? The Christ. Here it is. The son of God. And that believing believing that he is the Christ, believing that he is the son of God, you may have life in his name. You see, there's a beginning, there's an end. He's coming back at the end to point back to why he's written these things. And he's pointing us right back to the beginning of the gospel, who Jesus is. As you consider the advent of Christ, I believe there is a need to properly and correctly identify who this Jesus is. There are many people in this particular time of year that are going to be maybe more apt to listen to things of the Lord. Perhaps even just the name of Jesus might be more acceptable, perhaps, to some at this time of year. we got to be clear, church, who this Jesus is. We need to understand the eternal impact of knowing him rightly. See, because just to see him as a baby only or to, to see him as a man primarily or to see him as a good teacher or just simply an upright example of human morality. If that's all that you embrace about Jesus, you're missing the Christ of Christmas. More importantly, you're missing the Christ here in the word. You're missing it. Because you see, while it is true that he did come to earth as a baby, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, it's true that he was a great teacher. It's true that he taught godly morals and values. It's true that he led by example what it meant to walk uprightly. It's true. All those things are true. But church, if you do not believe Jesus is the Son of God, how is it that you can have the life that only he affords. John wrote this gospel that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing who he is, you may then have life in his name. Jesus then, the word of life. The Logos. You know, the Greeks had a philosophical understanding of the Logos. John knows, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, John knows exactly what he's doing when he puts this word Logos into place. The Jews had some reference point for this Logos, going back to creation, going back to the time in Genesis. This Logos has existed from eternity past. He was with God and in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Paul writes that in Colossians chapter two, verse nine. And while it may be hard to reconcile all of the details of what that means, by faith, we must embrace this biblical truth, church. The logos, Jesus was fully God and fully man, fully God and fully man. The Jesus of the scriptures is God incarnate. God coming down to man to do for man what man in his own strength could not do. No other man could accomplish what the God man accomplished. For the Bible says that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. You might be thinking the best of men, select one, think of one, whoever that may be. He could not ever provide the sacrifice necessary for life everlasting. The perfect lamb of God, the son of God, the Christ. Only by his atoning work at the cross are we delivered and rescued from darkness. You see, it's his spotless, without blemish. He came in the likeness, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? On account of sin. If you put it simply, we see that the Hebrew writer says that he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. If you look at John 1.14, you see that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, and in case the listener didn't pick up on this logos from verse 1, he comes back to it here in verse 14. The word became, became flesh. Implication is that there was a transition that took place. The one who had been with God in the heavenlies became flesh. John says that this word dwelt among them. And that word, I believe, here is helpful to unpack just a bit. Literally, the word means to dwell in a tent. So we could also translate that verse, and the word was made flesh and pitched his tent among us. Or, and the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. James Boyce commentator has some interesting words in regard to Christ tabernacling among us. He says that the tabernacle for the people of God was the center of their worship. And the most important single object in their camp. Everything about the tabernacle, its dimensions, its furnishings, colors, functions, and arrangement. It was designed to communicate spiritual truth. So hence many of the functions of the tabernacle, they were previews of the functions Jesus Christ would fulfill when he eventually tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. For example, the tabernacle was the center of Israel's camp. Do you remember that? They all they all camped what was in the middle of them? the tabernacle right we also remember that the tabernacle was the dwelling place of god in that tabernacle there resided the ark of the covenant remember the cherubim the mercy seat 10 commandments the tabernacle was the place of god's revelation you remember the tent of meeting that's the phrase that's the reference remember how many times god called them to the tent of the meeting talking to moses talking to aaron It was the place where God met with his people. The tabernacle was also the place where sacrifices were made. If one were to come upon the tabernacle and view the tabernacle and begin to enter through the eastern courtyard, they would see, one of the first things they would see would be the brazen altar upon which sacrifices were continually offered. And what would that be a picture of, church? that would be a picture, a reminder to the people that coming into the presence of God, a sacrifice was necessary. A sacrifice was needed. You see, this tabernacle was also the place where the people of Israel worshipped. And church, I hope you see the connections between the role of the tabernacle and the role of Christ, who tabernacled among us for a time. The word became flesh and he pitched his tent among us. That's the picture John's giving us here in John 1, 14. One other verse I'd like to highlight up front from these first 18 verses comes from verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. In the original language, the word he is actually a demonstrative pronoun. You might say, well, what's that big deal? A demonstrative, this one. John is saying, this one. This one. Jesus, the Logos. This one, he's pointing them out. This one declared the Father. It's wonderful language. I want you to keep this in mind as we read through the Gospel of John. No one has seen God at any time. And yet the Son who is sent to earth in the form of man, he declares God. In other words, John is saying right here in 118, you want to know what God is like? Look to the Son. You you want to get an idea of how God operates? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the express image of God, the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He came in the fullness of the Godhead bodily. John is identifying Jesus by pointing out his divine nature, his heavenly connection to the Father. With the objective that all might believe in Jesus. That's John's objective. That all might believe in Jesus. That all might come to believe. That all might come to know. That Jesus is the Christ. The son of God. And that believing. You may have life. Everlasting life. In his name. As we'll see upon reading the entirety of John's gospel. John continues to weave in a series of identification statements about Jesus. No other gospel writer identifies Jesus like John. So if you're wanting to know about this Jesus, if you're not sure today, some of you may be here and you're still teetering on the fence. You're not quite sure who this Jesus is. I want to encourage you this morning to take your Bible, open your Bible, read the gospel of John. John, unlike any other book in the scriptures, will tell you and give you identifications Of this one named Jesus. I'd like to give you, in the time we have remaining, John's unique identification statements of Jesus scattered throughout. We'll briefly read the identification statement, we'll provide just a short snippet of context for understanding, we'll show how each identification statement connects to the advent of Christ. You see, when Jesus identifies himself in John, he is also making a claim, some more exclusive than others, but the identification statements, the ID statements, solidify his position as the Christ, the Son of God, John chapter 20, verse 31, the Christ, the Son of God. So let's look at him. Here we go. Identification statement number one, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life, John chapter 6. You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to these as we go. John chapter 6. We're not going to spend a great deal of time in any one of them. But we are going to go through them. John 6, 33. Starting in verse 33. For the bread of God, Jesus says, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Oh, that sounded like a great idea to the people. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now the context here is that Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And he's appeared to his disciples walking on the sea. Remember that? The crowds at the time were seeking Jesus. That's verse 24, chapter 6. They were seeking Jesus. They were trying to find Jesus. And when they finally catch up to Jesus, Jesus identifies their motive in seeking him. Verse 26, he says, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate and you were full. In other words, you're coming to see me because you got your belly full the last time you saw me. And you liked it. Jesus exposes their motive. And then he exhorts them to seek him for a greater purpose. What's the greater purpose? Verse 27, labor, he says, labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. One of his big themes, everlasting life, life, everlasting life, market. It's there all the time in John's gospel, which the son of man will give you. The people asked Jesus for a sign, which I find kind of interesting because he just fed 5,000 with a few fish and I mean, come on people. What else are we looking for here? That was a pretty amazing thing. And yet they're asking for a sign. They follow that up with some history lesson. Which I always marvel when I see the people are trying to inform Jesus about something. <laughs> you ever think about that? You know, they're trying to give him like a history lesson on, you know, our fathers. They, and he knows all about it. But he corrects their understanding here in the context. Jesus says that. His father sent him to be the true bread. The bread that fell from heaven when Moses was around was temporary. And besides, he says, the people ate of this bread and they died. Jesus says it didn't have any lasting effect on them. It simply nourished them. It simply fed their belly for a time. But Jesus is identifying himself as the bread of God come down from heaven. This bread gives life to the world. People think it a good thing that Jesus has just said these things. And so they ask for Jesus to give them this bread always. Jesus then identifies himself in verse 35 as the bread of life. The one who comes to me, he says, shall never hunger. And the one who believes in me, the one who believes in me, shall never thirst. So as the bread of life, he is the one. He is the one who satisfies man's deepest need. And you know what, church? Man may not recognize it. Maybe there was a day in your own life you didn't recognize it. You were searching for something. You didn't know what exactly, but you were seeking. You were searching. You were trying to find something to satisfy your empty soul. Jesus is identifying himself as the bread of life. He is the one who satisfies your deepest need. He's identifying himself as the one who gives life everlasting. You know, I was reminded of that woman at the well a few chapters earlier in John chapter 4. You remember in verses 13 and 14? Jesus says, whoever drinks this water, that water from Jacob's well. Whoever drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. Which reminds me of John chapter 7, 37 and 38, when he's standing on that great last day of the feast. And he's talking about rivers of water flowing from within. And he's speaking of, John says, the Holy Spirit. You see, the pieces in John's gospel. Powerful to be able to connect to one another. Identifying himself. So connecting I am the bread of life with the advent. We need to understand that Jesus is the bread of God. Come down from heaven. He's come down from heaven to satisfy the hungry soul. And forever, this is good news, forever quench the thirst of those who come to him and believe in his name. What would it have been like? What would it be like? Had not the bread of heaven come down to earth? Church, I ask you this morning, are you grateful for the bread of God who has come down to satisfy your greatest need that you might have everlasting life? Look at the second identification statement. Turn to John chapter 8. I am the light of the world. John 8 verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Context, it's early in the morning. Jesus once again is in the temple. And he's teaching and people have gathered to hear him teach. And in about that time, scribes and Pharisees show up and they make a big scene. Jesus is interrupted in his teaching, no doubt, as the religious leaders bring in this woman before Jesus. This woman who allegedly had been caught in the act of adultery. Adultery, just a reminder, was the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. One of the ten commandments of the law of Moses. According to Leviticus 20, verse 10, both the adulterer and the adulteress were to be killed. They were deserving of death. And so the religious leaders were testing Jesus before the crowd who had gathered. And you know, these religious folks, they were determined to catch Jesus on some matter of the law. And so they bring this woman before him and they ask Jesus, hey, what do you think about this, Jesus? Here's what the law says. What do you say? That's the context leading up. Instead of immediately speaking, Jesus stoops down on the ground. You remember this? He stoops down on the ground and he starts writing on the ground. John doesn't tell us what he wrote on the ground. There have been a lot of folks speculate what he wrote on the ground. I don't know what he wrote on the ground. I'm not going to stand up before you and tell you what he wrote. The Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote. All I know is after he started writing on the ground, the Bible says he, he, he stood back up. And he says, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the stone at her first. And right here I imagine this awkward silence. And one by one, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, the Bible says the oldest began this, there was a convicting work going on in the conscience. And one by one, you can just picture them dropping their stones and walking away until all that was left of Jesus and the woman. Your accusers have left. And Jesus shows compassion on the woman and sends her away, exhorting her. says, sin no more. And Jesus spoke to them again. It's interesting here that verse 12, when we arrive at that verse, Jesus spoke to them again. Verse 13 says, The Pharisees therefore said to him, The Pharisees are still around. There's still a crowd there. Even though they walked away from the scene, walked away from the act of stoning this woman. Jesus' words here in verse 12 are addressed to the plural, to the group. And we see in verse 13, the Pharisees are responding. So the Pharisees and folks are still hanging around here. Jesus says and identifies himself, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Church, do you think those words, that identification statement meant anything to that woman just caught in adultery? I'm the light of life. He who comes to me will not, shall not walk in darkness. It's interesting to be able to see this connection that Jesus is the light of the world. By the way, that's one of the big themes too John's gospel. You see it back in chapter one. He's the light, the light of the world. Oh, by the way, just as a side note, not only is Jesus the light, not only in 1 John, does 1 John say God is light. We see here Jesus is the light of the world. But let me take it one more step. In Matthew's gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, He's pointing at each one of us and saying, you are the light of the world. You. How is it that you can be the light of the world? Because the life that you have in Christ is intended to shine the light unto other men. So let's be clear, God is light. Jesus himself here is the light of the world. Come down to men. Shining light for the world. And as his children... As his followers, you and I are intended to be light to others. You see, Jesus came for the sick. He came for the hurting. He came for the blind. He came to set captives free. I believe he came also for this woman right here in John chapter 8. And as the light of the world, all men are called to this light. To follow Jesus, to abandon their walk in darkness and to embrace the light which leads to everlasting life. I want you to think about the absence of light in this dark world. If Jesus had never come down to earth, where would this world find itself? And many think this place is gloomy and dark now, but I want you to consider, had the light of the world not arrived, darkness would have forever permeated and life everlasting would not have been possible. Identification statement number three. Turn to John 10, starting in verse 7. I am the door. I am the door. Jesus said to them again, most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. Jesus has just given an illustration in verses 1 through 5 of the sheep and the shepherd. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus was using an illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. So beginning in verse 7, he reveals clearly the point of the illustration. He says, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. What is it to go in and out and find pasture? Well, I believe he answers the question in part. In verse 10, at the end of verse 10, he says, I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. Do you know there are many people today who believe that saying yes to Jesus, believing receiving Jesus into their life, do you, do you know there are people who think that they're just gonna be boxed in, they're just not not gonna have any fun? It all depends on the definition of fun, right? It's just Jesus is squashing all their fun. Bunch of rules, bunch of things not to do. You know what? I'd point them to John chapter 10 and I'd let them know, John chapter 10, Jesus is the door and the one who enters in by me, Jesus says, will be saved. And here's what else is gonna happen. He's gonna be able to go in and out and find pasture. What's that mean? He's gonna have life, abundant life. That doesn't sound too restrictive to me. It sounds like a really good thing. Sounds like something that I would desire to be able to go in and out. He's the door. Seems to be an identification pattern being established here by Jesus. As he identifies himself to the people, he is continually... Speaking of what he gives. What is it he's giving? He's not only the giver of life, he's the giver of everlasting life to those who come unto him, to those who enter in by Christ alone. You remember those two fellows in Pilgrim's Progress who jumped in over the gate, jumped in over the side. Hey, they jumped in, they jumped in. And Christian's like, hey, where'd you guys come from? There's a gate back there. You need to go enter by the gate. And ah, it's not a big deal. Ah, it's not a big deal. It's a big deal it is a big deal because if you remember the story you remember what happened to those two fellas you see it's, it's important not only important it's significant it's a must we must enter through the door of Jesus is that an exclusive claim? you bet it is are there going to be people that aren't going to agree with that statement? yes sure are church that's what the Bible says Jesus is the door Come in by Him and you will be saved. He's not one of many doors, He's the door. When we connect that with the Advent, we see that Jesus came to earth to provide this door of salvation. Had had Jesus not arrived to be the door, to be the way, as we'll talk about in just a moment, You'd you'd have no place to go for life. You, You would have remained in your sins. You see, Jesus is the door. As identifying himself as the door, he is your entry point for being saved. That door of salvation is accessed only through the person of Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. You know, I was reminded of this and thinking about Noah and the ark. You remember that big door that was closed? God said it was time. Been a hundred years in the making. They made this ark, Noah and his sons, and God's, it was time. Boom, doors closed. And you can just picture those on the outside of the door. rains came. We know a little bit about rain here lately, don't we? I was thinking about the flood this week. And as bad as water is here now, It reminded me of the flood and how how incredible it would have been to have been around at that time. Especially to have been on the outside of the door of the ark. There was no escape. What a vivid picture, church, for today. Because the picture is still true today. If you find yourself outside the door of the ark, outside the door of Jesus... You too, just like the people back in Noah's day will perish. John 3, 18, Jesus says, he who believes in him, that's Jesus, he says is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Which side of the door are you standing on this morning? Identification number four, I am the good shepherd. Same chapter, chapter 10, verse 11, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives life for his sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. Context here comes right on the heels of his identification as the door. He identifies himself as a shepherd who does two things. I want you to see these. He does two things primarily. First, he gives life for the sheep. He gives his life for the sheep. And the second thing he does is that he knows his sheep and is known by them. Psalm 23 verse 1 says that the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. You see Jesus as the good shepherd will lead his sheep in right paths for his name's sake. He will provide water. He will provide food. He will lead the flock into green pastures. As the good shepherd, he knows his sheep. Each one of them. Think about that. He knows them. He knows those who are his. There's an intimacy pictured here. A relationship. There's also a call and a need for the sheep to have a relationship with the shepherd. The sheep know him as well. So Jesus came down to earth to be our good shepherd. He knows those who are his. A shepherd leads his flock. Micah spoke of that last week in chapter five, how this ruler to come would shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. You see, Jesus came not only to be the door to salvation, but to serve as a suffering shepherd. The one who was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's what Isaiah 53 verse seven says. This good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep that they might, through his death on the cross, have everlasting life. Identification number five. I am the resurrection and the life. Turn to John 11. Read verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Praise the Lord for that. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Context, Jesus has arrived on the scene in Bethany and news has reached his ears that Lazarus <coughs> is asleep. Remember that? He's asleep. He's dead. His disciples think he's sleeping. He's sick. But he's dead. The opportunity would be here For the glory of God, that the Son of God, that's John 11 verse 4, that the Son of God would be glorified through it. And so Jesus is speaking with Martha. Who is noticeably distraught over the loss of her brother, Lazarus. Martha acknowledges that only if Jesus, oh Jesus, if you had only been here, you could have saved him. You could have kept him alive. She acknowledges that her brother will rise again at the last day. Not, a, not at all on her radar, thinking of who's in her midst. That the one standing before her is the resurrection and the life. You remember, as the story continues, Jesus goes to the tomb with the women, commands that the stone be removed. It's been four days now since Lazarus died and Martha reminds Jesus. This is another one. He remind- she reminds Jesus. "It's has got to smell really bad. He's been there four days. And Jesus in verse 40 says, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And we see the postlude to the event in verse 45. Many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, what happened? They believed in Him, There were some other things that happened as a postlude, but I want to point that out. They believed in him. You see, the connect with the advent here, Jesus came down to earth. He raised Lazarus back to life. In fact, Jesus in his time on earth, he raised a few others back to life as well. But the greatest of these resurrection events was the day when lying in a tomb, Christ himself found Himself in the tomb, dead. Now on that third day, God raised him back to life, raised him from the grave. That tomb that once held his body was empty. Praise the Lord. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Right? And the hymn writer says it. Because he lives, all fear is gone. You see, as the resurrection, Jesus conquered what Paul says that sting of death. That for so long had held people captive. Death used to be a hopeless situation. But death now is filled with hope for the one who comes to Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the resurrection. And he's also the life, life everlasting. Many who witnessed the miracle of raising Lazarus believed in Jesus. And from that point on, they, as John says in John chapter 5, they crossed over from death to life. His coming to earth, taking on the likeness of man, dying for sinful man. Taking upon himself the sin of the world, and then being raised to new life as the resurrection and life, he provides hope for what is yet to come. Hope. I enjoy what Paul says in Philippians one twenty one. For to me to live is what Christ; to die is what gain. There's no fear in death. Because of what Christ has done. Because of him coming down. Because of him living and dying on the cross. And because three days later he was raised. He truly is the resurrection. And there's hope. Look at number six. Identification statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14. John 14 verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. Context here. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's been speaking of his disciples about where he's going and that he's coming back to take them to be with him. He says in verse 3 of chapter 14, I will come again and receive you to myself. In verse 4, Jesus says that where I go, you know, and the way that you know. Thomas then asks a question, verse 5. Lord, we do not know where you're going. And how can we know the way? takes us to verse six, the familiar verse that many of us here know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus came down to earth to serve as the way to the Father. Out of all his identification statements that we're covering here this morning in John's gospel, this one, I believe, very well may be the most exclusive statement of all of them. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. Those are fighting words in our culture today. Do you know that? Battle lines are drawn to dispute those very words. Many do not believe that Jesus alone is the way to God the Father. Many believe there are options to God. I had one young man who's in a hospital room who's dying. And I remember having a conversation with him about this very thing. And I remember hearing what he had to say. I'll never forget it. He likened Going to God, being with God the Father, he likened that and the path to get there as a, he he, he pictured a bike wheel. Those of you that that, uh, picture a wheel on a bike, and you know those spokes? They all lead to the center of the the wheel. He said it's like, you know, all those spokes, they all go to the, the, there's a lot of different ways. That's how he described it. Here's a dying man, and this is what he's breathing out. And I don't know how many more days he had after I left the hospital to visit him. But that was his concept. That was his understanding of how to get to the Father. A lot of different ways. I want to tell you this morning, church, there are not a lot of different ways. There is one way. There's one way to get to the Father, and that is through, by faith, Through Jesus Christ, the Christ, the Son of God. That's, I'm using John's words, John 20, verse 31. Believing in him. John 1, verse 12, believing and receiving this Christ, the Son of God. And believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's how you get to the Father, through Jesus had he not come down to earth to show the way and to present his truth, by the way, his truth. Are there not many today rejecting his truth as well? His truth. Has he not given to us his truth? He's revealed to us his truth. One small example of his truth, standing upon his truth. You see, he has already defined the, or, the, the, the institution of marriage. He's already defined it. It's one man. It's one woman. And yet there are many today who desire to just erase the truth that God has already put in place. We're not at liberty as man to erase his truth. It's his truth. But you see, therein lies one of the problems today is that man does not see himself primarily under the authority of God Almighty. His truth. Oh, remember the hymn writer. His truth abideth still. Still still true today. His truth abideth still. Praise the Lord for that. Are you currently going the way of the Father? See, it's important, church, that you understand this. You'll not be with the Father unless you come to the Son and believe in His name. In fact, if you read John 6, verse 44... Speaks of the work of God drawing men to himself. God does the drawing work. How does he do He does that through the convicting work of whom? Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit has a wonderful ministry for those who are in Christ. But sometimes perhaps we forget that the Holy Spirit also has a ministry to those who are outside the door. He's convicting the world of what? Sin. That's also in John's gospel, by the way. Believe on the Lord, Jesus Christ, and know with certainty. You can know with certainty today where you're going. Oh, what a joy to know where you're going. Thomas didn't quite get it and understand it, and Jesus identified himself as the way, as the path, as the road. I'm the way. That's how you get to the Father, through Christ. Look at the final one in verse chapter 15. I am the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Context here, Jesus again is speaking before the cross. He's about to go the way of the cross. He's addressing his disciples about the importance of bearing much fruit. In fact, fruit bearing would be evidence that they are disciples of Jesus. Church, do you know that the same is still true today? Where there is no evidence, little evidence of fruit being born for Christ and for his work, for his kingdom. There is cause to question whether one is actually a follower or disciple of Jesus. Are you bearing any fruit? Jesus seemed to be very concerned about fruit bearing before he went to the cross. He's talking to his disciples about abiding in the vine. And he's, he's pretty clear on how fruit bearing happens. Abide in the vine. Jesus is the vine, we see in the context of John 15. His followers are the branches. So what do we have? These images, these pictures of life and growth and that they happen as one is nurtured in the vine of Christ. See, Jesus is going to be leaving, but he's not going to leave them as orphans. That says in John gospel as well. He's not going to leave them as orphans. He's going to provide for them another counselor who would abide in them forever. And this other counselor is all, listen, the ministry of this other counselor named the Holy Spirit, he is always about pointing you toward the words of Jesus. He is always going to be about speaking what Jesus spoke. The Holy Spirit does not speak on his own accord. John's gospel tells us that. He speaks only that which Christ has spoken. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit points to Jesus and that Jesus during his time here on earth, who was he always pointing to? His father, the one who sent him. The words I speak to you, I speak to you. Father has given me these words to speak to you. All I speak is come from the father. You see, Jesus came down to earth to sanctify, to cleanse, to prune. Some of us don't like pruning. Pruning. Maybe you like to prune some of your plants and trees and what have you, but you may not like the pruning that God does in you. Be assured that the pruning, any pruning he's doing in you is a good thing because the, the purpose behind the pruning is that you would bear much fruit for him. Fruit bearing only comes through an abiding in Christ. That reminds me of the union that we have in Christ Jesus You can do nothing of kingdom significance without a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, without receiving him as Lord of your life, without believing in his name. I thought about using John chapter eight. We see when they're about ready to stone him. Remember in verse 56 Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said, you're 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Here's another identification statement. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, I am. What happened after he said that? They were about ready to stone him on the spot, weren't they? Because you see, he was identifying himself as God it goes all the way back. Remember Moses? Moses didn't know what to say. And he kind of tripped over his word. So God had him, Aaron, his brother, be a spokesperson. But he said, well, what do I say? If Tell him I am. Send me. I am. Give, give him my name. This is my name. I am. Jesus is using that right here. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. You see, Jesus is communicating time and time and time again in this gospel. His identity, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. I'll read those three verses that we started out with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, John writes, he has declared him. This one, the Logos, has made him known. church it's always important to ask the so what question at the end so what the question perhaps questions that I leave you with this morning do you believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And do you believe that in knowing who he is, the Christ, the Son of God, that life everlasting you have in his name? Life everlasting. Life everlasting begins now. It's not something you have to wait for. He's the one who is the giver of life everlasting And in giving you life everlasting, you have been given also this spirit who dwells within you, this spirit who gives you the ability to love, the ability to have peace in the midst of storm, joy in the midst of your trials. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. And you list all that fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. That fruit of the spirit comes as a result of knowing who this Jesus is that we're speaking of this morning of knowing the way. If you're here this morning and you don't know the way and you haven't known the way and you're, you've been confused about the way and you've been hearing all these other things the world's talking about, I hope this morning you've been able to hear some clarity about what God says. Here's what His Word says about how you can be sure, about how you can know And Jesus has identified himself. And I encourage you even after today. You can do it as an individual. Perhaps you can do it. Dads, lead your family in this. And just go through the Gospel of John. And go through some of these identification statements. Let's be clear as a church. Who Jesus is. This is not some just celebration of a baby. We're talking about Jesus. The Christ. The Son of God. Come down to man. Lived. Died was raised and has given each one of us opportunity for life everlasting, has shown us and exemplified the way, the truth. He's truly the door, the door by which if we enter through him, we will be saved. Oh, church, there is clarity here. Jesus is identifying himself and identifying how clear it is, how simple it is. Jesus is the Son of God and through him only will we have life. For those who are trying to get to the Father any other way this morning, I encourage you and exhort you to please listen to what the word says. There is no other way to the Father other than through the Son, Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the clarity that you have put forth here in this Gospel of John. Father, I pray for each one here that we would believe that your son, your only begotten son, that we would believe that he is the Christ, that we would believe that he is the Son. Of God. He was fully man. Fully God. And that believing in this identity put forth in the scripture of who Jesus is. That we may then be assured and rest upon. Have a certainty. Of this life everlasting. Such good news. We thank you for that gospel, truth, the good news, the assurance of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Father, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, who is our rock. He's our redeemer. Father, thank you for the life that you've given through him. Pray this in his name. Amen.